0: welcome back everyone to quality where we're exploring quality and emergency care i'm your host arjun Venkatesh, and today we've got a wonderful set of guests talking about a topic that has uh in some ways you could say what's old is new but also what's new is newer uh, we've got kate hawk joining us here she's an emergency physician at yale university and a co-lead of the equal substance use disorder initiative And we've also got Jean-Marie Perrone, who's an emergency physician and addiction medicine specialist at the University of Pennsylvania. Both of them are on the cutting edge of what's going on in treating substance use disorders in the ED. And today we're really gonna focus in on and talk about alcohol use disorder in the emergency department and treating it um, and how we start to think about this. I'm gonna kick us off with what is, I think, one of the more sort of challenging concepts around this, which has been that it's been a big shift in emergency medicine over the last couple of years Uh, just treating opioid use disorder and that feels different because we see people with a life threatening overdose um, and now we've got increasing evidence about what we can do to initiate and get them on treatment versus alcohol use disorder sort of feels like it's been around for a long time there hasn't been a day where people haven't worked in the emergency department where we see people with alcohol intoxication or withdrawal and so you know Jean Marie Kate like where's all the attention coming from now you know how's this sort of taking off recently
1: I can add um, just my thoughts here first. Um, I think we were lulled into a lot of complacency in emergency medicine about kind of the background of alcohol use uh, for many years earlier in my training and uh, and even up until recent years where uh, patients would come in with profound alcohol intoxication, often very frequently. We would know these patients pretty well, but we didn't really feel like we had a lot to offer. Um, and then with the paradigm shift of uh, really starting opioid use disorder treatment from the emergency department, I think we really learned how to elevate this problem and these problems of kind of um, multiple levels of uh, challenges for patients that we can address in some ways. And not to say that this is our problem, but this is our opportunity to treat patients and offer, offer patients in probably the only time they access healthcare in the emergency department. And then maybe the other big reason is I think we all know that, you know, being at home during COVID, alcohol use increased in many populations, and now alcohol morbidity and mortality has gone up by about 20%. And some of those groups with uh, the faster rising uh, rates of problems are are women. And so, you know, thinking of uh, family members and friends who might be at risk, I think we really need to think about this, not just in the emergency department, but across all of our domains that we uh, you know, our people and advocates in.
2: I think one of the other things that shifted is you know, is that it wasn't always that we did a good job of understanding that addiction or substance use disorders were treatable diseases. Uh, as clinicians, that's not something that we were necessarily taught if you went to medical school um, in the 70s, 80s, or, or 90s. And I feel like there's been sort of a re-emergence to understanding that, you know, by and large, these are, these are treatable diseases. Um, and while it might not just be that one, the domain of one particular type of clinician, you know, as uh, generalists and emergentologists, we, you know, span expertise in a large variety of fields. And this is certainly one where, you know, as Jim Marie pointed out, you know, these are not, uh, we may be the only people who see these folks uh, in the ED. And so it's an opportunity to intervene that is consistent with our goals of being clinicians.
0: So, I don't want to be negative and I don't want to be cynical, but it does build off of there a little bit, which is, you know, is there something special about the emergency department, something special about our skill set? Is there something about emergency physicians that put sets us up to do this well? Or are we just putting another bandaid on the healthcare system and just, you know, treating alcohol use disorder because nobody else will? I think one of the things people probably are going to find a little frustrating in this, just as, you know, people often report for opioid use disorder, is that it's really hard to find follow up. And so, if nobody's willing to, if nobody else is willing to help take care of patients with an alcohol disorder, then sort of, why should I? And what do you tell those folks?
1: That's um, both tough and easy, right? So, (laughs) I remember asking an oncologist once, you know, how can you take care of cancer patients? That's so depressing. And he said, you know, if I wasn't taking care of cancer patients, there'd still be cancer. And uh, you know, I think we have to offer people treatment because, uh, you know, we see these people and we've, you know, we've learned to be compassionate because their problems are so multidimensional. It might be housing, it might be childhood trauma, it might be, you know, a very different childhood than and, and young adulthood than we had. Um, or, or it might be very similar and they, you know, have the genetic predisposition to alcohol use disorder. So there's a lot of different uh, reasons why I think Substance use occurs. Um, I think it's kind of interesting when you look at, you know, travel in other countries and look at substance use problems. Um, In actuality, um, there is a lot more substance use in our country, but there's a lot of alcohol use. There's essentially more or comparable alcohol use in other countries relative to our our big opioid problem. So, you know, alcohol use is ubiquitous in the world and um, finding Low barrier treatment strategies that are effective. I think we're just cutting, kind of scratching the surface on that now. All
2: right, wonderful. So, so Jean Marie, can you tell us a little bit more about when we talk about treatment for alcohol use disorder? You know, what kind of medications are we talking about?
1: So, um, some some of the initiatives that we're thinking about. Um, first of all, you know, one of the differences between opioid use disorder (OUD) and alcohol use disorder (AUD) is that you know we, we felt in our emergency department um, that we needed to do a little more screening for opioid use disorder. And then when I think about alcohol use, our patients are a little bit more obvious. And so recognizing that you're having you know, a conversation with a patient with alcohol use, the conversation can be a little bit different because it's already starting with um, something that's out in the open. Um, maybe more so than opioid use uh, sometimes, I guess. But, um, you know, talking to the patients about when they, uh, what, what triggers they have for drinking, um, what periods, a lot of patients have had long periods of successful abstinence. And so talking to them about how they were able to facilitate that, um, how they could potentially get back there, you know, with a little bit of support from a health system. And then uh, thinking about the medications, I am always shocked, I've been doing this for maybe two years now, you know, offering patients medication, and when you ask them, you know, have you ever been, you know, has anyone ever talked to you about your alcohol use, has anyone ever offered you a medication to help you, you know, decrease your drinking, and almost uniformly everyone says no. Um, so even in people who have been in treatment, who have successfully you know come through and had periods of recovery, very few of them have ever been offered medications, which makes it super low-hanging fruit because uh, you know, I think a lot of people come to the hospital looking for antibiotics, looking for medications, looking for quick fixes. We can turn this into something that patients are excited about that offers them an opportunity to start, a medication that can help them, you know, mitigate this problem. So the medication I primarily offer people is naltrexone. Um, You know, it's a full opioid antagonist. uh, But in this setting, it's really working to block some of the euphoria and reinforcement associated with alcohol use. And so it's a pretty simple mechanism to explain to colleagues and patients, and also is a little easier to initiate than buprenorphine in terms of you don't have to wait for withdrawal. The patient can be actively drinking. They can continue to take it when they're actively drinking. And the dose titration is, is pretty simple. We start at 25 milligrams, uh, you know, maybe for one or two days, if that's well tolerated, they can go up to a therapeutic dose of 50 milligrams. So there's not any of the micro dosing, macro dosing, you know, lengthy initiation, have to be in withdrawal, um, similar to buprenorphine, it's much cleaner and simpler. And I think that allows for uh, easier onboarding of colleagues to to begin offering this medication. Now, I know Kate that you have also uh, done uh, some work, also including gabapentin in um, in adding to treatment in certain certain settings. Maybe you could tell me when you consider prescribing both. Sure. Um, so
2: you know, much like you, we started offering Naltrexone a couple of years ago, and I agree completely, it is remarkable how low hanging the fruit is and that um, many people are very interested um, in a medication that can help with craving, but have never ever been offered it. And so this is not about sort of doing elaborate, detailed uh, interventions to convince people to take medications. It is simply, um, actually I had a patient last week um, who was literally signed out to me as metabolized to freedom. Um, who came in as a fall with an injury, got CT scans, had an alcohol level well above 400 and literally the morning sign out was make sure they walk, make sure they go. You know, we talked about this a little bit, but you know, this was somebody who, when I went to reevaluate them, offered treatment and said, absolutely. I can't, I can't miss work. You know, I've got, I can't lose my job. I can't miss, you know, I can't, um, you know, I have kids at home I have to take care of, and this is somebody who you know may have been better served inpatient because he probably was going to have some withdrawal symptoms based on his alcohol level, but this is somebody for whom I think gabapentin was actually an amazing option. Um, we did both gabapentin and naltrexone, and that, the rationale behind gabapentin is that it provides, um, an opportunity to help with some of the mild to moderate, um, uh, ambulatory withdrawal symptoms. You know, it is not um, sort of the gold standard for folks that you're, you know, it, this, this, is, this is not for, you know, the folks that you think might wind up in a drip on the ICU. These are, it's really a placement for chlorodiazepoxide or uh, another benzodiazepine for ambulatory withdrawal. And so that's who I think about gabapentin for, but I agree completely. Naltrexone is, is really, you know, a slam dunk. If you can get, you know, if you have folks that are really um, hungry for something to help them. You know, with their reduce their alcohol use, um, you know it it makes perfect sense that we should just make it as easy as 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 possible to provide that.
0: You know, from as I hear you guys give these examples, the story is so true. From a a clinical example perspective, um, the population that has an alcohol use disorder is probably one of those populations that's at very high risk of being subject to an ED handoff between shifts. Right? It, by nature, it's one of it's a patient population that's going to come in on one person's shift and leave on somebody else's. And in our world, ids our are crowded. We're trying to minimize length of stay. And we know handoffs are risky. And so we tend to try to simplify them as much as possible. So that handoff of sober and discharge, metabolized to freedom, I put their discharge papers in for you. Just wait for as soon as they can walk. Just click print, right? That's pretty common handoff. The problem with all that, though, is that that first person isn't really in a position to ask that question, identify whether or not that person could get treatment. So help me if I'm the doc getting sign out on these patients, what's the efficient script? How do I get to it in one or two questions, figure out if this is somebody who is where there's that hanging fruit opportunity to treat? And if they say yes, what's sort of my go-to drug dose duration to sort of get things kicked off?
1: So I, I think one opportunity that you mentioned there is true. These patients are handed off. Um, so maybe we should frame the opportunity as the person who receives them because in reality, the other person, like you said, didn't have a lot of opportunity to chat with them. But these patients are often handed off in the morning. We're a little less busy in the morning. It's part of kind of the overnight cleanup. They're somewhat straightforward. If the patient's, you know awake and alert and ready to go, that might be the perfect time to talk about, you know, do you have a primary care doctor? Uh, Do you, you know, see, seek, you know, have regular medical care? What do you think about, you know, the, this problem and the fact that you ended up in the emergency department? I think by any categorization, somebody who has an ED visit for alcohol use has risky drinking or alcohol use disorder, almost by definition. So they're probably all candidates. uh, An important exception and one that's sometimes overlooked in our era of excessive opioid use disorder is that a lot of patients do take both uh, alcohol and opioids or they're prescribed opioids for other reasons. So really have to be clear that we don't want to be prescribing naltrexone to people who occasionally or sometimes or commonly use opioids. So that, that's probably the biggest um, issue and safety issue with this medication. Um, but I, I would say, you know, an eager intern or second year resident who's going to be out there doing the cleanup and discharge, they're, they're the ones who are excited to have these conversations and to be ready to prescribe. Um, so one thing that we just started in our emergency department is a, a nudge or a provider banner that's going to allow team caring for the patient um, to be reminded that they had an elevated alcohol level. And when you go to discharge them or admit them, depending on what it's for, um, you can consider starting naltrexone. Um, So we're trying this, we had a lot of success with this with opioid use disorder and initiating buprenorphine, but sometimes it's just really helpful to remind our clinicians uh, that this is an opportunity at discharge to start this medication or at least have this conversation.
2: Yeah. And this is, I mean, I I would also put in a little plug for the brief negotiated interview, which, um, you know, can be more, it seems like sort of, a can seem like a big sort of unwieldy motivational interviewing technique, but honestly it can really be done in like three to five minutes um, or even really even faster. If you have somebody who is ready and interested, which is who we're really looking for, Um, you know, where you introduce yourself, you ask if they're willing to talk about their problem with, you know, alcohol or opioids, and then ask them if they, you know, have any connection, see any connection between their visit and their, their alcohol use. You know, you can also ask whether they've ever been, you know, in treatment before, whether they, you know, have any interest in, um, in seeing treatment. And I mean, honestly, people will be like, yes, I was in treatment. I want to go back. Um, And so really the next steps are to help identify a plan. You know, again, this is not about spending a long time trying to convince people to do something they don't want to do. It's really about, There are medicines to help you when, and if you're ready, you know, you can talk to your primary care doctor or us, you know, in the emergency department when you're ready. And then the other thing I will, I know Jean Marie very clearly said, you don't give naltrexone to people with opioid use disorder. That is the one absolute contraindication. (laughs) So just want to make sure everybody sees that, that really loud. And that's actually written into our, um, you know, when you go to prescribe naltrexone in our ED, it's actually like a safety stop. Like, did you talk to them about opioid use? Um. But but other than that, you know, people do very well with
0: the medicine. Yeah, and I, I think the important thing is you have to ask them, right? You got to talk to the patient about that. I think there's like what you don't want to be doing is it's an absolute contraindication, but it's also one where you absolutely talk to the patient about it, not don't make a desktop diagnosis or a desktop contraindication. That's how, you know, we end up making assumptions and people don't get the treatment they should get. Tell me, you know, there's a ton if I'm a sort of, I'm, th- I'm trying to think about this and I'm a medical director out there we're trying to decide how to approach this, or I'm a needy doc out they're trying to figure out whether I want to get, uh, you know, start treating more people. A lot of places have gotten their treatment programs for opioid use disorder up and going, not alone, but with a lot of help, be it peer recovery specialists, social worker, working with addiction medicine, psychiatry. And so there's this, you know, real idea out there that you can do it and it's better if you've got a lot of other support services. Some states fund people right in California to have a lot of help in the ED for a use disorder. How much of that is similar or different in this case when we're treating alcohol use disorder? Do we need all those pieces just as much? Can we, what can we do without? A lot of our EDs in the emergency quality network don't have access to a lot of these kinds of resources. And so a lot of this is trying to figure, figure out what's realistic uh, for the average ED out there.
1: I think that it's um, it's a little bit different and easier really than alcohol, than opioid use treatment. You know, our patients with opioid use disorder pretty much are leaving the department with a strong craving and desire to use immediately. Um, alcohol is a little bit different. People achieve periods of abstinence more readily, especially if they have more of a binge drinking problem. Um, So they'll have episodes of, you know, abstinence or, or less intoxication in between binge drinking episodes. So it's not quite as chaotic as opioid use disorder. So some of that care navigation that we try to provide with peers is somewhat less necessary. I think follow up is still really important. Obviously, um, you know, we're going to start them on a prescription that that you know ideally would be continued by a primary care doctor. So that is something that um that we'd want to tie a little bow on the handoff. Um but I think the need for peers in this setting, it would be amplified and wonderful, but but probably very unnecessary compared to you know the opioid use navigation that has to occur. The other population that I think is super helpful and and really, when we started first doing buprenorphine from the emergency department, we didn't have all those pieces in place. and so we tried to just say, use buprenorphine to help patients with opioid withdrawal. So just give it for opioid withdrawal. just you know have a low threshold for giving it to patients who you know may be uh, trying it for the first time and are and are interested in getting into treatment. Um, and we you know we had the x waiver, we had all these other complications to it. Um, but similarly, you know, people who have been drinking, take, for example, a college student who's been in your ER. I know you guys work in the ER, um, a college student who works, who's coming to your ER maybe twice in one semester. That's a patient. It was a great conversation because there are opportunities and evidence now to suggest that using naltrexone PRN before a big event, like a frat party or something where you've been out of control, is really a new opportunity for a patient to take 20 naltrexone prescription from the emergency department and try it three times over the next couple of months and see whether or not it helps and whether or not they need to go back somewhere to get a refill. So you don't, we want the handoff to happen, but actually there might be an opportunity for people to try it even off of one prescription.
2: And the other thing that I would add is that, I mean, I think that the waiver was such a barrier. Uh, as far as handing people off with opioid use disorder back to their primary care doctors. Whereas I think that's not nearly as much the case for at least people who do have primary care uh, clinicians because it's not, you know, they're less scared to prescribe naltrexone. It's not a controlled substance. There's not the waiver. Um, You know, I think that, um, you know, ideally it would be nice to connect some of these folks, uh, particularly with severe alcohol use disorders to a, you know, a specialist but you know the reality is we know that there are not enough uh, addiction specialists um, in this country to treat everyone with severe use disorders and so you know i think the more important thing is that you know it's better to hook them in you know give them a, a script um, have that conversation and hook them in with their primary care doctor is certainly much much better than than nothing which is you know what a lot of us
0: were, were doing before i want to go back to this college student idea because I think it is one I have not heard before. Um, I am sure people heard Chief Marie say that and we're thinking, wait a second, is that like pill in a pocket for alcohol use disorder? And then immediately where did my head go from there is, you know, I have to imagine the usual sort of harm reduction police that are afraid that we're gonna normalize deviance and that we're gonna promote increased alcohol use if you can just go take a med for it whenever you need. Um, what do you say to those kinds of people?
1: I think it's a little different than, um, than maybe promoting deviance because you can take it while you're drinking. So it's not really, you know, it's really just harm reduction. It's helping people drink less. um, So they're not going to, I don't see them, you know, taking 10 naltrexones and then not drinking and then taking no naltrexone and drinking too much. I I think it's, it's a little bit different um, than kind of going overboard, but um, I think, it, I, you know, if, if you had to uh, account for the, um, you know, ratio of people that you could help with that prescription, I think it would, you know, solidly land on the positive side. Um, I, I think the idea of, you know, having a younger person in those, you know, big periods of excessive drinking um, have an opportunity to, to start to rein it in. You know, if you've had a ED visit for alcohol use, and I said this before. Um, you're at great risk for having a lifetime alcohol problem, even when that occurs in college. Um, so, you know, getting this under control in a time frame where their brains are still young, and uh, and they can, you know, really experiment, if you will, with control. Um, I think is kind of a, an interesting opportunity. I don't think all the data is there, but in certain populations at high risk, um, this has been used, and I think it's something that we could really build on from our emergency
0: department populations. And it's interesting here, because we're so trained to think about the acute problem that we think about often acute outcomes, right? We measure 72-hour revisits to our EDs. At most, we'll look at what what happens out of the 10 or 30 days. Is there a 30-day readmission after an ED visit? Uh, We forget our pediatric EM colleagues often take this very long-term view of treatment when they care for a kidney, in ED, really thinking about how that visit may or may not send them on a different health trajectory long-term. And there's probably a lot of that that really applies particularly to the younger patients we take care of in our adult EDs. You guys are experts in this. So, you know, the vast majority of EDs out there aren't gonna have two people in place. They're definitely not gonna have somebody who's born in addiction medicine or a researcher in substance use disorders, things like that. But more importantly than that, they may not have sort of a, even a local champion yet. And so how do, you know, we have a lot of ADs, several hundreds in the Equal Network that are trying to build up programs around this. They're interested. They're trying to get interested for the first time. You know, how important is it that you have to have one super passionate champion in order for these kinds of things to take take off? Or is there a way that they can just sort of work their way into practice without that? because we do a million things in emergency medicine. We don't have a champion for everything. I don't have a anaphylaxis champion in R.E.D. ED, um, yet we do a pretty good job taking care of patients' anaphylaxis. And so how does that translate over to this?
1: I had this really wonderful email from a colleague at a community hospital um, just like two weeks ago. And she said she had just read Kate's recent article about naltrexone in the emergency department for alcohol use disorder. And she wanted to know if we were doing it and how, and she was really excited about it because she thought it would be, you know, her, her team would be excited about, you know, offering this to patients. So I think publishing in the literature, things like this equal network, and you know, getting um, getting the word out that this is feasible. I mean, in my you know super evidence based you know academic medical center, and probably yours, naltrexone is barely used. I can't understand. I mean, I graduated from medical school a long time ago, but why aren't the people who graduated five or seven years ago who are on internal medicine services not using it? I mean, we actually just pulled our naltrexone data. It was prescribed six times in the emergency department in the past six months. Four of them from people, you know, my addiction medicine colleagues and me, um, and you know, internal medicine. The only people who are doing it are outpatient psychiatrists. Uh, like 300 prescriptions in the outpatient psychiatry, so nobody's doing it. Nobody's doing it from the hospital. I, I don't know why. I don't know what where that evidence gap is coming from, or or why it's so persistent. Um, because this is not a scary drug, and this is a super common problem. Um, so that, that's a bit of a mystery to me, but in the emergency medicine domain, I can see why it hasn't occurred yet, um, but it's just a perfect opportunity to get more evidence out there, socialize this within our ED literature and you know, have a ASAP session on it, you know, get it out there in, uh, in all the different ways that people learn. And, uh, and I think they'll come asking for more information from the community or from uh, you know, urban settings
2: jean thank you for sharing that. That made my day. Cause I have to say, this is like, this is really why we, we, we write, right. Is to, to help get things out to the community. And then I think the other thing, and I mean, Arjun, clearly you are someone who understands this very clearly and has hit the nail on the head is, you know, you, you talk about this in the frame of quality. Like this is, this is quality care. This is what we should be doing to provide quality care to our patients. And it's not necessarily about one person's pet project or or having a local champion for anaphylaxis or for antibiotic stewardship. Uh, Although those those things can happen. Um, You know, I think that, you know, part of how you implement this in places where people are like, I don't know, like we could do this, like that's that should be enough. You know, if you provide people with a protocol and like sort of clear instructions for how to integrate that into their emergency department, which we have tried very hard to make available, um, you know, on the Equal website for certainly for treating alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder. Uh, And so the idea is that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, if you are a place that doesn't have someone who wants to reinvent the wheel, you can take something that's been sort of done or worked out in another, you know, 10 or dozen EDs or hundreds of EDs and say, oh, like we take this off the shelf and this is the protocol we'll use or the pathway. I don't know how many of you are using Epic Pathways, but we're like this is what we do and this is how you do it. And this is one of the things we learned for opioid use disorders. Like if you just make a a protocol and say, I have leadership support of this protocol, like it gets done. So, I mean, I think that's really, you know, there are a couple of key things to to get it up and moving in your ED.
0: Yeah. You've done a bunch of work as well on stigma. Just tell me how much is that getting in the way of us here, right? It's like Jim Marie said, we've had the medicine around for ages. The patient population has been around for ages. Is it sort of conscious, unconscious wise, are we, is there so much stigma that we sort of just think that, man, like, I'm just going to be a drop in the bucket. I'm not, I'm not going to be the person that can really turn the ship here. And is that what's keeping people from sort of really engaging and taking this on?
2: Well, I think, so I have a comment and then I know G. Marie has also spent a lot of time thinking about stigma. So, I mean, I think that part of how we are able to do our job day in and day out is that we, um, don't absorb sort of the, the traumatizing things that we see and experience every day. And so I think part of, you know, what we, we we think of is we don't necessarily think of alcohol use disorder as a traumatizing disease every time we encounter someone who's intoxicated. Um, and so I think it's around shifting that uh, perspective a little bit. Uh, you know, we we certainly know that these medications for alcohol use disorder do work to help reduce return to drinking and days of heavy drinking. Um, And I think a lot of it is really just around educating folks who did not get this, this education in medical school or residency, um, and really, you know, helping people identify how rewarding it can be to help someone change their trajectory, um, which I think is really what we're, what we're trying to ask people to to do.
1: Yeah, I I also think that it's, it's it's slightly easier, I mean, in many ways than opioid use disorder because it is a little nor- normalized, right? Alcohol use is, you know, socially acceptable. Um, even excess alcohol use is somewhat socially acceptable. So when you're talking to patients, I think as a provider, you don't have to struggle as much with, do I have all the right answers? Because it comes, you know, a little bit more easily in just kind of, um, Uh, stuff, stuff that we know. So, you know, for Kate's motivational interviewing, I mean, we know a lot of these patients come in with trauma associated from a fall related to alcohol. So it's easy to link why they're there with, you know, this opportunity for treatment, but it's not that scary to talk about it in terms of stigma, because you're not accusing the patient of doing something illegal the way, you know, sometimes people feel really uncomfortable talking about, you know, opioid use disorder, which is, so uncomfortable and so stigmatized to the patient. So I think in that way, these conversations are somewhat easier and and easier to get your colleagues on board.
0: So most people are probably either working out or driving home on this podcast. And that means they've either entered that last stretch on the treadmill or (laughs) they have just turned into their neighborhood and you get one final word. What's the one last thing you want to leave our listeners with when it comes to treating alcohol use disorder and the one real learning lesson you want them to walk away with? from today's experience?
1: I, I mean, I would say you don't need a pathway, a protocol or anything. Just start talking to patients about whether they've ever been prescribed anything or in, and or if they're interested. And you can write your first prescription without any other details. You can start it tomorrow, but the conversations are really easy and, and really the patients are grateful and eager to hear more about it. And I think as just a simple next step, um, that's the way to go.
2: Just do it. <laughs> I agree completely.
0: I think that's I a shorter
2: it. version of Jean Marie's, but I think that that is uh, you know, just take the leap.
0: Uh you know, that's what mercy physicians are great at, right? Like we have, historically much of our practice has grown from being responsive to the patients that we see in front of us, uh, trying out, testing new things. Uh, we're not always gonna have a randomized clinical trial for every single thing we try. And so the important thing is to take that first step. Jean-Marie, thank you for joining us today. This was an amazing discussion. I learned a ton. This was not part of what I got when I was a resident. I am now convinced that we can take on alcohol use disorder in the emergency department, that there are a lot of pharmacologic options that are available, that even without perfect community resources, what we do in the ED really matters. Um, And I think it's like you said, having a really passionate champion can help kick this off. But this is really something that can be part of each and every one of our jobs in the emergency department because it's a patient we know we see every shift and it's somebody whose health we can really impact. Uh, Thank you for making us all smarter. Hope to have you back on the Quality Podcast in the future.